A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. That's the second time it's gone off. Never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. That's. Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. It's the Irish Times second captain's football podcast. Oh, my David and Ken Early ready to go. Hey, Owen, how are you? I'm pretty good. If you can just keep talking for another 32 seconds or so, I'm not even going to do it. You, you, you saw where it was going. It was a cheap oh, Stephen Gerrard gag. I'm not even going to go there, Ken. Although. If Stephen Gerrard was here right now, he'd say he'd apologise to both of us. Mm. He'd say he deserves it. I'm sorry for ruining the spectacle front up. of yesterday. But if Thierry Henry was here, on the other hand, Henry would rather focus on Gerrard's career as a whole, <laughs> in totality. Well, I couldn't even follow the point Gerrard Henry was trying to make. I mean, I was I was riveted by. I wanted to see what Carragher was going to say. You know. Yeah. <clears throat> he's he's certainly been you know, not shied away from being critical of. For instance, Martin Skirtle, <laughs> uh, if he does things that he, you know, if he falls short of the standards required of Mario Balotelli, perhaps, yeah. Mario Balotelli is another one who's occasionally, uh, he's occasionally fallen short of what's expected. Uh, but Stephen Gerrard, who so many times, Owen, has dug Liverpool out of holes, uh, to, to do that, to a stamp is just the most, it's not even as though, so imagine he'd been, <clears throat> he'd been red carded for his first tackle. On Mata. Imagine, oh, imagine he'd really gone through one matter, maybe two-footed, or you know, a, a, a proper red card challenge, and you get sent off for that. That would have been well. The referees, you know, maybe the referees a bit over exuberant with the red card there. Uh, you know, in the sense of at least this is you can see how it could have been part of the game. What Jared is doing, but to stamp on somebody. To stamp on somebody is just stupid. I no. was quite struck by you, you mentioned Carragher. I was, I was, same thing. I was just on tender hooks waiting to see where he was going with his incredibly long sentence. You could see him <laughs> buying himself some time, saying some words, working out how best he could criticize Jared without. Is there going to be absolutely a real nailing him stinger at the end of this? And eventually, the point he made in a long-winded way was: Look, Jared's good moments come from his heart and, and, and his emotion. His bad moments also come from that place. He doesn't. That's the way he plays. He doesn't really play with his brain. That's something that we would have been uh, a line of thought we would have been familiar with. But I, I think he did get to the point eventually of actually criticizing him for getting sent off. Then the question of Thierry Henry. Thierry, what about that amazing incident there? Well, 
that's not going to change the way I look at Stephen Gerrard. He's been a great player for Liverpool. For England. It's <laughs> a nonsense. Uh, you're thinking, Thierry, this does not bode well. If you're afraid to rock the boat when you've got no connection to the player, you know, you wonder what it is if Arsene Wenger is in his next, uh, you know, in his next little spot of bother or whatever it might be. I'd be, I'd be a little bit concerned about TT's punditry career based on that. Well, TT also would be unwilling, I suppose, to see a, a great career like that remembered for one appalling um, uh, moment of madness. And that's maybe fine a week later, Thierry, but we just want your reaction to this thing that you've just seen. He might have his own previously. reasons for uh, not wanting to see one uh, unsavoury incident. Oh, tarnish, going, yeah. tarnish a golden reputation built up <laughs> over so many years. To see it all thrown away uh, would be... You know, it's not as though that's... Uh, you know, what happened with Jared yesterday is going to haunt him, haunt his dreams. And I mean literally his dreams... Mm like the way the thing last season did. Although still, it's significant. I mean, this last is very important. Last season was an honest mistake, whereas this was... Mm, but this one, the, last, season was, last season was more important. Last season yeah. was the league. The league is about to be... Although this season, in a, in a, in a sense, is, it's not as immediately um, important in that, uh, you know, there's obviously no title at stake. But there is a lot at stake. That's the Champions League at stake. That's the you know a place among the elite clubs of of Europe. That's conventional wisdom has it that it has a lot to do with your ability to sign quality players. Although it seems as though, uh, given the players that Liverpool did sign, uh, knowing they were in the Champions League, and given the players signed by some other clubs who weren't in the Champions League, it's not necessarily as important a factor as money. Money is also a an important factor in terms of determining who you can sign. But, you know, he cost Liverpool a chance of coming back into a game, which maybe they could have. Maybe, you know, based on the way they played in the second half, you would have given them a better chance, I suppose, with, with 11 than 10. And he kind of killed it all. He killed it all off within, within a minute. That's a massive, massive disaster for the club, really. We're going to talk to Tony Barrow about this later on, but let's play some report on sport music here and... Keep chatting away now. We will get back to that game, but I want to first of all talk about what I think already here in March has to be the sports photograph of the year 2015. Go on. Um, I think you've seen the photograph, on, but I'm going to show it to you again. There it is. Oh, we're looking at a bunch of spiffing-looking Barcelona <laughs> players. And who's that? Hang on. Who's that geography teacher on the left? Lionel <laughs> Messi. Standing on the left uh, of, of a row of Barcelona players, um, we've got Dani Alves in a silver lame jacket with uh, black lapels, uh, gold, uh, shiny gold shoes. Um, he's, he's wearing a pair of uh, expensive-looking glasses, got his hands buried in his voluminous pockets, <laughs> generally looks as though he considers himself to be a pretty amazing guy. Right next to him is Neymar, who's wearing um, the kind of thing you might have seen, uh, the sort of double-breasted leather jacket favoured by, um, I suppose, Gestapo officers in the occupied territories in the East. Uh, <laughs> although this is in a kind of a fetching shade of maroon. Yeah, I'd almost say Oxblood. I'm gonna say it's, it's yeah, it is. It is Oxford. He's, he's obviously he's obviously wearing a tie and the highest the skinny jeans and the highest high tops I've seen, possibly ever. We've got we've got Rafinha here on the right, who's just he's gone for a sort of Ricky Martin late nineties. He's all in black. You know what I mean? He's 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 just gone for a sort of a figure like hugging black look. Um, 
to be honest, I can't actually identify this guy. He's he's standing uh, there. He's he's wearing a pair of. I mean, considering these guys are all footballers, I've got to say, I think this. I think this guy's trousers are too tight. I mean, footballers usually have you know, you know, they, they don't have too much of a problem with with tight trousers. You know, they favour the tight trousers. You know, because of their, you know, they they run around a lot on these legs. They're in good shape. This guy's trousers are too tight. Too tight. Uh, in my opinion. I mean, they're t- I mean, they're tight. I think they're out of control. There's not a, you know, the uh, imagination is not being overworked. He's wearing a denim. <laughs> shall we? Shall we say? He's wearing a a, a denim, Im- a kind of imitation denim jacket as well. And you know, the point is, <clears throat> we've got some uh, a a huge a bunch of extreme fashion victims here. And then standing next to them in literally the most boring outfit I've ever seen <laughs> is Lionel Messi in a in a grey shirt, black jumper, grey trousers and black shoes. Yeah. And he I mean can you I, it's just it's just an amazing photograph. There's a bit of a there's a bit of a head boy look about he, yeah, he, Leo Messi there. He does. He, he he's really managed looks. he's managed to get in with the cool kids somehow. Um, I mean, he's respected among them for his for his. Prowess. I don't know if he is respected among them. I don't. Know, I don't see any way that he could be respected among Wearing them. Clobber like that. Given you know, given this, it just. I suppose it goes to show him that if you are the greatest player in the world, even somebody like Danny Alves is prepared to overlook your uh, your taste in clubs. What's weird about this is that in recent years, Messi has. It's almost as though he's thrown caution to the wind in a fashion sense. You're thinking, though, of his Ballon d'Or efforts. Yeah, his Ballon d'Or efforts are getting more outrageous. By the, it's like Dennis Rodman going to pick up these awards. <laughs> it is. But I think we can see that that's not the real Lionel Messi. This here is the real Lionel Messi. Um, uh, immediately after the Classico, he gets he dressed up in stunning, stunningly boring clothes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just doesn't, doesn't have a problem with that as well. I mean, if you were sharing a dressing room with, with Danny Alves and Neymar, you'd start to feel... Intimidated. I just feel intimidated. I, I, I might go the messy route, though. I might just give up. Do you think? Yeah. It's, you're, how are you going to live with that jacket? You don't, you don't think you'd go with the gold, uh, gold I do, shoes? I do like the gold shoes, all right. I do like Danny Alves' gold shoes. Um, well, Messi just doesn't... He, he doesn't feel the need to compete on that. In that field, uh, being the best player is is apparently enough. Not that he was necessarily the best player in this match last night, which everybody had been looking forward to, and, and proves ultimately to be a bit of a letdown. I think. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Barcelona won. I think deservedly uh, won. Luis Suarez scored a great goal. Um, Messi did provide a, a fantastic cross for the opening goal by Jeremy Mathieu, um, but it didn't really hit the heights. And it was I was struck by a quote afterwards from Luka Modric. Uh, after that goal, he's talking about the Suarez goal, which happened with about half an hour to the play. We left. And you're thinking, what? I mean, I'm sure Modric isn't sort of... I'm sure Modric wasn't too happy about it. But, I mean, he's talking about it was such a psychological blow to us to concede that goal. Why is it such a psychological blow? You've conceded a goal. It's not the first time it's happened to your team. There's still half an hour to go. It's not as though this Barcelona team is, you know, invincible. No. It's not as though you're being starved of the ball and, you know, running around chasing shadows in the way that Real Madrid teams have been reduced to in the past. This is a team which is like an ordinary team with, with some exceptional forward players. They're going to create, they're going to concede chances. You will have chances if you can keep some pressure on them. And Real Madrid just didn't do it. And he's looking at them thinking, what is, you know, um, there was a statistic. I saw that Bale played two passes in the last 20 minutes of the game. And Gerard had played four in the 38 seconds that, <laughs> <laughs> that he was on the field. Uh. But, you know, Bale... Uh, was not the. I mean, it, they, there was. A, they, they have a really wide shot of the pitch there. You know, at, at Camp Nou, so you can see kind of almost half the pitch at, at once. 
and you can see this how rigid Real Madrid's system was. It's a real four, and then a narrow three, and then another narrow, narrow three up ahead. And it was as though almost they were all joined together by an invisible sort of bamboo uh, frame, so they couldn't deviate at all from this strict formation. There was no movement from the midfield line into the forward line at all. You know, you have, um, uh, you know, Modric, uh, Kroos and Isco all kind of just in midfield. Nobody's really kind of trying to... Fred Wynn is saying the only, the only guy who's getting beyond the forwards in this team is Sergio Ramos. He's the only guy who wants to, you know, break forward and, and um, give the defence an unexpected player to deal with. Um, you have Ronaldo. I mean, uh, Benzema played actually... It was was probably the best player for Real Madrid, and he made some things happen for him. He made the goal happen for uh, Cristiano Ronaldo, who wasn't too bad. But Bale, you know, just didn't, couldn't no, get into it. Bale was incredibly quiet. The, the approach that you talk about there, I was struck during the game by a lot of the comments are about how ridiculous the diving was and how petty a lot of the fouling was, and it was, it was another really just narky derby between these teams. Mm. And it struck me that it seemed like Ramos and Casillas and these guys had a massive issue with Jose Mourinho for sending them out in these games with that kind of attitude, that spoiling attitude, that idea that, well, we're actually a bit inferior to these guys, but we'll get, we'll get up all up in their Be faces. Be the bad guys, embrace the evil. Embrace the evil, whereas they seem to, both teams seemed happy enough to embrace the evil last night. It, it looked like it very much could have been a, a Jose Mourinho versus Pep Guardiola, Real, Barcelona game. Yeah, it did, except that, except that the Pep Guardiola team with wasn't the, playing the, like a Pep Guardiola team. Yeah, with the, yeah possibly. Um, possibly that side of the equation. But it had that, it had that sort of sense of... Uh, Ungeneralized unpleasantness, which got more ridiculous as the game went on. Actually, in fact, uh, as Madrid, at least according to their players, after they'd almost effectively given up the game for loss, that that was when it started to get really bad. Um, and you know, I mean, Ancelotti said, you know, we played well for the first hour, but the last half hour was terrible. Uh, we lacked a cool head to try to equalize rather than playing long balls. They just lacked real conviction that they could come back into it. I, you know, I've never seen a team just. Well, I've never seen is, is an exaggeration, but to see a team, this is the European champions, to see them deflated so easily by a second goal with still loads of time to go, you got the sense that this is not... I mean, Liverpool provided a more competitive spectacle with 10 men, yeah. two goals down um, in the second half of the match. And maybe um, that's why the Premier League is getting the big books. Of course, we saw Chelsea against Hull. Uh, there may have been a certain comedy element to the way that Hull managed to score two goals inside one minute to, to peg Chelsea back. But <laughs> you know, this is the kind of thing that doesn't tend to happen it's much. the and great thing about the Premier League. Any team can beat any other team or, or lose narrowly. Even Thibaut Courtois can get caught in two minds and pass the ball five yards to uh, an unrushing centre forward who disbelievingly passes the ball into the net. Although I must say that the Hull player who closed... Courtois down I can't remember who it was now did a really good job of it because they just hugged the the right foot they just said listen I'm going to stop you going around the outside of me here I, I think I think he was almost suckered into it at that stage now what he could have done is just literally just let it go wide you know, just do anything with it but his his angle actually outfield was narrowed a bit and I think he might have, might well have been blocked so he felt he had to control it and come inside although it was still madness if he had shown some of the um, the unexpected shimmying skills of Simon Mignolet <laughs> uh, letting the ball run between his oh, yeah. legs, uh, this in the minulated torero. Um, but yeah, there was a there was a, a lack of sportsmanship definitely in the, in the classic game. The kind of lack of sportsmanship which we're all very used to now. And he, I think we saw obviously the same thing at Anfield, uh, a real a real nasty atmosphere again. 
you know. I, I mean, it was an interesting atmosphere, I thought, because um, there was the goal, an early goal for Manchester United. I mean, a very good start for Manchester United. An early goal, and then a, a silence like a tomb filled with the lusty voices of 2,600 Manchester United fans belting out songs about Steven Gerrard. Mm. And I was sitting there listening to this thinking, oh, I wonder how that feels. That's really got to be, that's really got to hurt, you know? Um, when I said earlier about, you know, haunting his dreams, I'm sure it does. I'm sure he dreams about it quite regularly, that sort of moment. He dreams about the moment, you know, he when he's falling, you know that way when you <laughs> wake up when you're, when you sense yourself falling when you're asleep. I'm sure that's happened to him more than once. I'm sure there's been, you know, wish fulfillment dreams in which he effortlessly controls the ball, sweeps it long towards, you know, Luis Suarez. And uh, it's never going to be that way. Um, but here he is. Again, he's not even playing in the game. He's actually just <laughs> sitting on the bench. Maybe it was that he came out to warm up at one point. It was when Lallana got cleaned out uh, by Phil Jones. Who, who I thought had a very good game. But uh, it was this... And I just thought to myself, this has got... It doesn't matter who... It doesn't matter who you are or how used you are to this. This can never... It's just... It's like a, a wound that's never going to heal. And to have it be jabbed, jabbed at, jabbed at, jabbed at, in front of 45,000 people, all of whom who are sitting there thinking, the problem is it's true. This is a, this is a true thing that happened. Yeah. You know, we all saw it. We were all here when it happened. And it's just, okay, you know, you still wouldn't expect him to uh, to go out there and do what he did. But I do think it was the Manchester United fans who can claim most of the credit. They they did the job that Diego Costa is trying to do you for his team. Yeah, and you didn't enjoy that, though. You didn't enjoy the that approach by the Manchester United fans, effective though it seemed to be for their team. Well, I think that there's a... I, I think it's increasingly the case that it's impossible for... Um, I mean, for, for instance, one thing that I saw afterwards was obviously that the... the Jared was sent off, uh, you know, committed this, did this idiotic thing, was sent off, um, and then was, uh, you know, so, so Liverpool lose the game, right, which the, everybody kind of is 95% sure they're going to lose from the second he's mm. he's got sent off. So they're probably going to not qualify for Europe now. And also his his handful of remaining games that he's got, he's already been left out of this one, remember, which is which may also have been playing into his, his uh, foul move. Um He's, he's only so it kind of seems like there's quite you know he's missing another th- three of those uh, at least I guess so it seems like there's already been quite a lot to a lot he's sort of the punishments are all are, are there and not to mention becoming a, even more of a laughing stock because he enabled the Manchester United fans to add on to actually change the lyrics of the song they were singing about him during the match <laughs> yeah. uh, to add in an, uh, an again to uh to to drive it home a bit more. The chant being that Stephen Gerrard, that you nearly won the league, and Gerrard messed it up, messed it up again, and Gerrard messed it up, so to speak. Um, but then it was, you know, what? The, then you see why is Gerrard not being criticised more by you know the media? Well, you know, he's like a darling of the. You know what I mean? You're kind of thinking, well, at what point do you sort of say, okay, it's it's enough? Yeah, but I think it's okay for the. Manchester United fans to go to Steven Gerrard about making a mistake. You, we, you it's t- not. It's not actually just them though. It's everybody. It's everybody. Even even if Crystal uh, Palace fans, um, Manchester City. Obviously, Manchester City won the title. But that's quite a natural thing, is it not? To, is it a natural to go thing? I to don't. The biggest player and the opposition team, one of the biggest players. Uh, the, when people talk about the 
oh, we pay good money in, we should be allowed to do what, what we want. I don't always agree with that. I don't think just because you pay for, you make a financial transaction, <laughs> you can automatically, it's right to act in any, in any way. I mean, there's clearly a line. You, you, a chant about Hillsborough is wrong. A chant about uh, Munich is wrong. These p- people died in these tragedies. But a chant about a mistake that the key player on the opposition team made on the pitch, yeah. I think it's fair game. Yeah, it wasn't even a game involving Manchester United, though, in any in any sense. It's just it's just pure. It's gloating in its purest form. I mean, it's a there's like a generalized kind of lack of um, there's an inability from, and this does not apply to Manchester United fans only, but I think it's a generalized thing now that it's impossible for a lot of fans to in any to even have basic respect for. A player that plays for another team. Oh, you say now, though. I mean, you're, you're, Arthur Hopcraft wrote this in one of our favourite books, Ken, The Football Man, back in the late 60s. Do you not think that... that he, he was, was saying that... No, he, he was making that point back then that, the, that, that that had existed in the 40s, 30s and 40s when he was growing up, um, or certainly in the maybe 40s, 50s, but by the, the time he wrote this book in the late 60s, he said that that was disappearing, that mm. the, the t- clapping and applauding oppo- opponents wasn't happening to the same extent. That was... Whatever, 40 oh, I'm years. not even talking about applauding them. I mean, I, I wouldn't... Well, showing, I mean, I'm, I'm showing, talking, showing a basic respect to the yeah. opponents. Yeah, it's, disappearing by that it's kind of almost the after. It's kind of like the, the dancing on his grave situation. <laughs> you know, the, the, cause, because I, I honestly do believe that the, it was the Manchester United fans' contribution to, to put Jared into that meltdown frame of mind. And I think that they can kind of claim credit. I mean, you see players who provoke... Opponents and they're clearly Diego Costa is the best example, the best current example of a player who's trying all the time to provoke an outburst from an opponent, which is going to get him sent off. And he would justify it by saying, "Well, this is the game. You know, it's better to play against ten than eleven. And I honestly do think that they they did that. But it's the kind of then the continuing. It's sort of like, well, this is a year on from the whole. These are football thing. supporters, though. I don't. I well, I, I, that's that's. I, I find I find it a little bit disappointing. I mean, back you know back in the forties zone. 40s wasn't necessarily the golden age of sportsmanship, but Winston Churchill still found time to praise Erwin Rommel in the House of Commons. Mm-hmm. And Nazi Gerald, who'd slaughtered thousands of British troops, still was able to, you know, he was able to give him a well played. <laughs> you know what I mean? You, uh, you know, we were up against the best. Yeah. But, you know, there's not really much that. It's, it's just, I just find it a bit boring. I wish the, the Manchester United fans or fans everywhere would take their lead from the Manchester United players who are models of. Uh, positivity and uh, and sort of uh, you know uh, fellow feeling. And Juan Mata, for instance, Juan Mata's just a nice guy, isn't he? I, I mean that genuinely. He, lo- he does these interviews. He's always he's always upbeat. I don't know what you've got in store for us here, but he always seems like uh, you know he is sunny side up kind of footballer. So he scores two great goals. First of all, first goal he he's he streaks away from Alberto Moreno, looking like Carl Lewis, <laughs> uh, purely purely by the, because of the fact that his movement is so. Uh, precise and uh, Moreno's got no idea what he's doing. Um, finishes off that goal with his right foot, then scores a brilliant second goal. Um, a cleaner scissor kick you're not going to see than what Juan Mata uh, did. Uh, and then goes home and types it all up on his blog. Uh, Hi, everyone. Uh, this is one of those days when there's no need for words. Um, he says, I enjoy, I enjoy writing this blog a lot, but sometimes I find it difficult to choose the right sentences to express how I feel. This is one of those times. But this has been one of the happiest days of my career. When you start playing football as a kid on muddy pitches for something so simple and wonderful as having fun, you dream about becoming a footballer one day to be in a game like the one in Anfield. I mean one of those thrilling games between two great teams 
and millions of people watching from so many countries. Manchester United, Liverpool have one of the biggest sports rivalries, and this is the biggest game in English football. I've experienced it myself. Um, so he goes on just to talk about... Uh, That's all good, isn't it? Oh, it's great, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, that balances out the nastiness from the supporters. Yeah, it matters, like, you know, uh, in the sense of respecting the opponent almost makes my own achievement, you know, that little bit better. You know, it's not as though I've, I've beaten a, a poor team here. I've beaten a great team. Uh, he says, uh, beating Liverpool at Anfield, being lucky to score two nice goals and feeling your gratitude is something I'll never forget. But we must be cautious. These are just three points in the race to our goal. Um, uh, many of you are asking me about the second goal. The truth is, I don't know how to explain it. It's something you just don't think. It's more a resource you use when you understand it's better to shoot the ball as it comes rather than trying to control it and keep the play. Angels Pass invited me to do so. It's one of the best goals in my career for sure, among other things, because it happened in such a massive game. Then he wishes happy birthday to Marcos Rocco, Fernando Torres and Alberto Bueno, who all had their birthday on the 20th, and finishes off by saying, uh, uh, in some stages of the match, Real Madrid were better than Barcelona and very solid, but things changed after Luis Suarez's goal. I want to say that it's a pleasure to watch Benzema there are not many players with such talent and plasticity. Uh, now let me sign off before you all get too bored. James Joyce writing this. I thank Joyce you, writing. as always. And I share this big joy with all of you after this Sunday that I will never forget. Yeah. What a nice... Have a great week. Hugs. One matter signs off. What a positive guy. Yeah. Uh, Wayne Rooney uh, mentioning that. Very happy. Fans are amazing. One matter eight. Great goals. Should have let him take penalty. Uh, Rooney, of course, missing a penalty that didn't... Um, didn't matter in the end, but... Speaking of positive guys, Ken. Yeah. There were a couple of articles about the most positive guy in English football, manager of the vanquished Liverpool side that emerged over the weekend. Yes. Now, these were interesting articles. Uh, one written in the Times by Matt Dickinson, one by Matt Lawton in the Daily Mail, uh, top sports correspondents in their respective institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rogers, uh, this is a... Well, I mean, it's, it, they were strange articles in that they appeared to be long interviews but there was no quotes they they were very like interviews but with no direct quotes a lot so a lot, a lot of detail that you would surmise certainly somebody close somebody to Brendan very Rogers. close to the, the subject of the interview would have to have released the information yeah because I mean some of them you're describing scenes where Brendan Rogers is the only person in the room <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so and, then, and very similar articles, I have to say, with some of the same lines. So, so it seemed as though it was from the same briefing. But anyway, um, it, it was remarkable. Uh, the, the, they both talk about the 180-page dossier uh, Rogers uh, has written on how a football club should be managed. Um, they describe a meeting with uh, Mario Balotelli, three and a half hours with Balotelli and his agent, Brendan Rogers, in the, in the office. Uh, he talked about Balotelli through what Rogers describes as his core principles, commitment, C, ownership, O, responsibilities, and excellence. Mm. So commitment means you have to be committed to what you do. Ownership means you have to take ownership of what you do. Responsibility means you have to take responsibility for what sounds a bit like ownership, but, you know, never mind. And excellence means it's all got to be done to a high level. Yeah, be excellent in all of those above facets. He explained in more detail what each one means, how a player had to take ownership of his role and responsibility of his own destiny. He scribbled a picture of a man with a crown on his head because everyone is the king of their own destiny. Now, I mean, I'm, I thought to myself, that's an innovation. I haven't heard of that been done before, even by top managers. Um, Mario Balotelli, however, was in for three, three and a half hours, and despite this 
moment when Rogers drew a sick man with a crown on his head to show Balotelli that he could be the king. Yeah. It, it apparently just was water off a duck's back in terms of the imp- impact that it would have on Balotelli. I haven't been involved in that many three and a half hour conversations in my life, Ken, but no. usually when I have been involved in them, there's a bit of to and fro. I mean, it's n- it, it doesn't usually work that a three and a half hour conversation can go between a very talkative, very positive, very engaged party and then a Suddenly uncommunicative. Quite a, yeah, exactly. Uh, second party. Unless there's maybe a couple of bottles of wine involved. Um, well, most, that does change things. Most conversations wouldn't last as long as, as three and a half hours. Anyway, there's, there's a lot of stuff in there. Balotelli basically is, has, has blown it, let them down. He will be gone, says, say, say, these, uh, say these pieces. So that's Balotelli out of there. Um, but it talks about how, how essentially Rogers had reinvented the, the season for Liverpool by uh, losing to Basel. He noticed Basel had switched to 3-4-3 and suddenly became damnably difficult to play against. Uh, and though Liverpool lost, he went home with a seed of an idea in his mind, and then after many sleepless nights, um, according, to the, uh, according to the Daily Mail version, um, he locked himself away in his office for the next few days, occasionally calling his staff in to discuss what he was thinking of, but essentially working through the problem on his own. One night he was up at 3 a.m. making himself tea and toast before scribbling down his thoughts. So anyway, the, the, you know, the, the new system is put into play. It, it works out well. And uh, I suppose all up until the match that happened the following day, uh, which, which maybe finished things off in a, in a, in a bad way. Mm. There's a couple of other lines in it. Um, uh, it says that he's a, a student of the game uh, who admires Renus Mikkels and Johan Cruyff. Isn't it a bit like being a student of 1960s pop music who admires the Beatles and Rolling Stones, though? I mean, it's not, you know, it's sort of, yeah. I mean, the guy who's really defined my footballing philosophy is. uh, Well, Rick Mickles, you know, Cruyff, you know, Busby, Shankly. Um, uh, There is another line here about how uh, Rogers likes British players and he does not buy into the idea that they lack the technical ability of their European counterparts. He thinks tactical awareness is the problem, and he blames the weather as much as anything, because tactical coaching is difficult in the winter mo- months when players just need to keep warm. Yeah, and apparently what he's done in the academy now is change their calendar. They, they come in later in the year. Sorry, they take a break over December and January, then come back in and stay at Liverpool until mid-July or something like that, rather than the usual football season type yeah, uh, and which, you know, and, and, and fair enough. And, and I have heard the point made, for instance, by Gianluca Vialli, that he thinks the wind in this part of the world is a, is a problem, uh, which, you know, say, growing up in Italy, you don't have to deal with to quite the same extent. You don't get those gales blowing over the Mediterranean to the same extent as they do coming in off the Atlantic. And that does affect the ball control and the kind of game that's played. Although I do have to think to myself as well about all those scenes of the frozen canals in Holland with all the Dutch... Uh, skating down those frozen canals, which, by the way, only freeze when the when the weather gets quite cold. Uh, and young Rinus Mikkels and Johan Cruyff, uh, those uh, beloved icons of Rogers, somehow managing, despite this, to develop uh, tactical awareness. You know, the, the famous Dutch tactical mind, which you could say has shaped all of European football, um, despite some frosty conditions at times. That's the end of Kennerly's report on sport.
Let's talk Liverpool United with Tony Barrett of the Times. Now, Tony, uh, the apology that Stephen Jarrett issued immediately after the game, do you think that might have cushioned him from fans' criticisms? I don't think it's cushioned him from, from criticism, and, and, and nor should he. he. I think he did the right thing in coming out and holding his hands up and admitting he, he was in the wrong, and he, it's not something that he could really explain. He, the supporters are, are disappointed in, in what he did. It's, I, I think what they would identify with and, and I think Brendan Rodgers mentioned after the game was that any Liverpool fan who sat through that first half would have been sitting there making tackles that the players weren't. I, I think they were looking at players who weren't up to the physical challenge that United have opposed, and, and that was a frustration. That was a frustration by any, any Liverpool sport on the ground. The difference, of course, is that when Steven Gerrard is representing the, the club, he does so as a player and not as a fan, and I think he allowed his passions as, as a fan uh, and maybe the frustration of of the way it's going for him in the, the, these last couple of months, maybe also a bit of the, the stick he's getting from United fans, he was warming up. I think that as a cumulative effect, I think that was resulted in the stamp. And there is the, it's, there is no defending, and, and he has come out and apologised, rightly so. But but obviously people are disappointed that he did do what he did. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Carragher saw afterwards sort of suggested that maybe Jared was was irritated by looking at, at the um, the struggles of some players, maybe playing in his position in uh, in the in the match and not really performing that well, and and this was a frustration. I mean, I think I kind of agree with your idea that maybe the the constant baiting of him by the Manchester United fans probably drove him a little bit crazy. I mean, there was something, obviously. Well, I mean, what, what do you actually think it was? Because it is clear that he wasn't quite in his right mind. I don't know. I, I think this whole final season for, for Gerard's become a, become a trial, it, it's certainly not the, the kind of farewell tour that he would have wanted. Uh, I, I think every ground he goes to, and every way ground, and every visiting fans who, who, who come to Anfield, make sure that they remind him of, of what happened against Chelsea last year when he slipped and uh, Liverpool didn't win the league. And I do think, I, I mean, it's, it's all well and good saying that these players are professionals, they've, they've got a lot of experience, but they're human beings. And, and when you've wanted something so badly, to have it rammed down your throat that you were responsible in some way for it not happening, that's got to be difficult for him to handle. I, I, I just don't think you'd be a human being if, if that wasn't uh, a problem for you. It, uh, the kind of weird thing, weird thing about Tony in a way is, is that uh, it's happening everywhere. You know, it's not it's not just one team. Um, you know, for instance, Chelsea, the team that happened against Manchester City, the team that benefited. It's every team. Why is that? Why there's some kind of latent dislike or some kind of a sense that supporters all around uh, English football apparently think it's quite fun to go to Steven Gerrard over this the worst thing that ever happened in his career. I'm not sure it's, it's peculiar to Gerard. I think there is something in the in the English psyche that loves seeing 
uh, that loves knocking superstars down. I think it's always been there. It was always said that it was the media who built people to knock them down, but I do think it's it's prevalent throughout society. I think people do like doing that. Uh, I think I think in in Gerard's case, it's uh, opposition fans just do know, know that if there is one way you can get at Liverpool and the Steven Gerrard, it is that 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 is the easiest way. Uh, I'm sure if if the boot was on the other foot, I can remember Liverpool supporters. Golden uh, Gareth Southgate and Stuart Pearce about missed penalties for England at World Cups. I, I just think it comes down to that, and I do think it's we, we live in an, an age where supporters don't really think for themselves, so they do they do tend to act a lot more like sheep than they ever did in the past. There's no individuality to, to the way they behave. So if one set of supporters does it one week, if one tune catches on in one terrace, it catches on in the rest soon after. And I just think it, it is that effect. Uh, but I do. I, that, I do think I agree with you, Ken. I, I do think it's difficult for him to deal with that, and, and this last year has become an ordeal because of it. Yeah, Jamie Carragher on Sky made the point afterwards that the the sendings off that he has incurred over his career, a couple against Everton, a couple against Man United, they've come in those kind of games where emotion can get the better of a player. And uh, Carragher's point, it's been made probably a million times before, but that Gerard his great moments don't necessarily come from something rationally going through his head, as in Istanbul or as in the, the cup final. It's, it's, he's a guy who plays with his heart. Um, but it's funny because for the most part of the course of his career, he can get a handle on, on the emotions. And yet the odd time, like yesterday, they get the better of him. Yeah, I think the thing with, with Steven Gerrard, he's, he's one of the, the best impulsive players that you'll ever see. He doesn't do things that managers would want necessarily. He doesn't always do things that, teammates would want he does things that he senses at that moment is the thing to do and when you do play on impulse that there's obviously a risk with that there's a there's a risk that you'll be out of position uh, but you'll, you'll risk being out of position because you'll know that being out of position you might score the goal that gets your team back into the game or wins a cup final so that that is the way he plays and but that has always been the way if you think of his, of his red card there's been four now against Everton and Manchester United so that does show you that he's, he's a player who's is about passion he's about impulse he's, he's about reacting to situations uh, whereas there's other players who've, who've played alongside Gerard. if you think of Javi Lonzo would be one everything he does is thoughtful and methodical Gerard is, is on impulse and, and that sometimes does come out wrong and, and yesterday just another example of that but you go back to when he started for Liverpool when he, he he was sent off in the Mayside derby against Everton for, for kicking Kevin Campbell. I mean, that was a really bad tackle. But if you would ask most Liverpool sports at the time, they would identify with the reasons why he made that tackle. The frustration of losing a home to Everton. The, the, the desire to get one over on, on an opponent who, who is about to beat you. Uh, and, and that is, it's that mindset of the support and that, and that impulsiveness, those two together, that do, do result in these kind of instances. Uh, we don't want to necessarily spend all day talking about a guy who only played for 38 seconds because there was quite a lot <laughs> else that happened in the game that he didn't have anything to do with. But I just wanted to put one theory to you, Tony, which, had been, which has been come up with by Richard Keyes, who is out uh, taking the desert air in Qatar at the moment. And he says, um, having looked at the interview of, of Jared, uh, he's, Jared said, I don't want to say anything else right now. Um, what is it that Jared wants to say, says Richard Keyes? I'll tell you what I think it is. He's steaming mad at the scandalous way he's been treated by specifically Brendan Rodgers and Liverpool in general. Rodgers has won his war with Gerrard. Talks about essentially how, um, well, Rodgers has been kind of publicly praising Gerrard and saying how valuable he is while offering him a, a contract which apparently was unsatisfactory and uh, quietly continuing to humiliate and frustrate him whenever he could. This is Richard Keyes' take. Is this just a, a tale from the Arabian Nights or is there something to uh, Richard Keyes' point of view here? 
no, I, I think in this case it is just it, it comes down to Steven Gerrard in that moment. I don't think at that point when he acts on the pitch, he's thinking of his contract situation. I don't think he's, he's thinking about leaving Liverpool Football Club. I don't think he's thinking of Brendan Rodgers. I don't, I don't think any of those things cross his mind. If Steven does harbour any grievances about the way it's come to an end at Liverpool, he's not made that plain in any way. Uh, I've, and I've got my own view on that, and I think Liverpool did decide that, that the time is right to, to move Steven on. Uh, and I think Stephen is, is clever enough and astute enough and been in the game long enough to realise what that meant for him. Uh, and I think that's why the, 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 he made the decision to go. Uh, he, hasn't, he hasn't intimated to anyone that there are any grievances on that front. And I, I just think it's, it's a proper red herring. It's, if if Stephen Gerrard hadn't done this at all in, in his career, if he hadn't had this kind of flashpoint mode, uh, previously, I think we could we could have all kinds of conspiracy theories, but it's something that's been part of his career throughout, and, and I, I think he just leaves it at that. Yeah, I mean, there were, there were it wasn't actually really that big a surprise when he was left out because obviously this uh, system, which has been going on in his absence for some time, has been very successful, um, and it was celebrated. But in a couple of big articles in the in the English papers of the weekend, the Times and the, and the Daily Mail both had some very well sourced articles about Brendan Rodgers and how he turned out, turned around the. Um, season. Um, I wondered what what you made of those. <clears throat> I mean, it seemed like Rogers had uh, was talking about how he how he kind of come up with this three four three system, which was very or or, or somebody had had spoken had spoken to the reporters. I should say because there weren't any quotes from Brendan Rogers uh, about how this three four three system was very difficult to play against. But has it been worked out now? Might there be more late nights ahead for for uh, for Brendan Rogers? I'm, I'm off at the moment, so we, I, I'm, I'm on paternity leave, so I don't know how they were sourced, but I, I think I had the same impression as you, that they were particularly well-sourced articles. Uh, I, I just think that, I think Liverpool is creating a culture for itself that is the kind of culture that the club in its heyday would have mocked, and it's one that where they do make progress, and everyone wants praise for it, and it's not that they've won a trophy, it's not that there's been a real significant development that they've qualified for your whatever it is, it's that we've, we it was going wrong and now it's not going wrong and, and, and everyone does want, and it's right through the club, it's not it's not specific to any one individual uh, it, that culture now exists and I, I look at Liverpool and yes it was going badly wrong and awesome and now it's not going quite so wrong but there is a bigger picture and that bigger picture is Liverpool are champions elect in May, and we're now in March, and, and they're looking as if they probably won't get top four. So, th- when you try and uh, dress this up as progress, I think that's a difficult sell. Uh, and I think at the end of the season, it will be an even more difficult sell if Liverpool have missed out. But having said that, I do think the managers will deserve credit for arresting the decline. It was a decline that I thought at the time could get out of control, but but stopping that did give Liverpool a platform to challenge for top four, for whether they take it or not. It is a lot better than it could have been, and I think that listen, there's credit that's due, but I don't want the kind of credit that that people are looking for. Yeah, I mean, most of the credit yesterday, I think, goes to probably Louis van Gaal, who who um, you know used Juan Mata in a position where he was going to be really effective, and Fellaini was really uh, dominant. But just to finish on uh, Liverpool, Tony, I mean, if they don't get back into the Champions League, and after that result yesterday, it's going to be a surprise if they do. Does that have consequences? Is John Henry uncompromising enough to say, "Well, uh, I expect you to be in the Champions League at the end of your at the end of your third season, as you were at the end of your second season"? This isn't good enough. To be honest with you, that, that's something I've been debating in my own mind. Uh, I I I think there's 
more than enough. I, I don't think there's any, any reason why Brendan Rodgers should be sacked. Uh, I, I do think this this culture in, in modern football of one good season being followed by not so good a season equals the sack. I think that is detrimental to everything. And I, th- I think we have seen that from November, well, probably December onwards, Liverpool have improved significantly. And the, the, there is the evidence that proves that the manager should carry on for me. Uh, but these are owners who who haven't been in this position too often before. Uh, and the one time that where they were really in this position with, with Kenny Daglish, it was seventh and eighth place wasn't good enough. Uh, and winning the trophy wasn't good enough. And there was a change. Uh, so a lot will come down to how the owners feel Liverpool end the season. And, and that's the thing that Liverpool can't afford to meander. If they do lose at Arsenal and, and Champions League looks beyond them, they can't allow the season to peter out because that would put people under pressure. Uh, it wouldn't necessarily be the manager because I do think he's got he has got the complete backing of the people who run the club. But there are players who, who might feel that they've got certain positions established who, who may think they're going to automatically assume certain roles. And I think they may suffer more, more than the manager in that case. There, there are quite a few players who, who I think uh, show Jesse that, that big games are a little bit beyond them at the minute. And I think they are playing for the futures. I think they, it's their new future stake rather than the manager. Okay, great stuff, Tony. Thanks a million. Cheers, Jens. That's interesting that Tony's been wrestling with that in his own mind, whether or not Brendan Rodgers stays at the club if they don't make it into the Champions League. Mm. You never, you, I suppose you don't know because you're having to look into the, you have to read the minds of John Henry and the owners. Yeah. But if I was to push you on it? Well, it's not just John Henry's mind you have to read, you have to read Brendan Rodgers' mind too. Why is that? Because it's not as though Liverpool are the only ones with a say in whether Brendan Rodgers is going to be at the club next season. Oh, is it? we might leave. Well, that was the interesting thing about the, the couple of uh, articles we've been talking about. Um, it seemed as though, uh, you know, there was certain there was mention made in both of them, uh, reference made to the fact that Rogers apparently has admirers at Manchester City, and of course, with his regard for British players and ability to bring the best out of them and teach them the tactical awareness that they have missed out on in their education, then England are also looking at it, thinking, you know, we could do with a guy who really can fill British players with confidence, give them the tactical awareness they need to compete at the highest level of international football. So if you've got admirers in high places like that, and suddenly an, un, uh, an ungrateful, uncaring, unappreciative uh, audience, they're looking and thinking, we're not in the Champions League. And you're thinking, hey, mate, you know, listen, you're asking me to get into the Champions League when I don't have a wage bill as big as the clubs that are in the Champions League. Then suddenly maybe... It's not just Liverpool are thinking, hang on, do we, do we want Brendan Rodgers here? I mean, we, we all were blown away by the, by the sick man with the crown, and, and, and it has changed a lot of our lives thinking about that, you know. Although, I mean, if you think it through, can everybody really be the king? You know, is that not ultimately a destructive way to look at it? Yeah, I want to be, be the king. Might be some ego clashes there. Yeah, maybe maybe we need to think of a different hierarchy. Maybe there, there needs to be a few different levels. You know, one person gets to be the king. Someone else is holding his coat. I suppose, you know, all the way down this feudal hierarchy. But, uh, you know, while, while that's all been great, we still aren't in the Champions League and we think we should have done better this season. You know, that's, maybe they're thinking that, but maybe Rodgers is thinking, well... You know, I've actually done a good job here, and I'm not sure I've been appreciated. And if Manchester City want to uh, want to try a new approach, then maybe finally I get to work at a club where I've got the tools to do the job. So I, it's, I think it's maybe a two-way street there. We've got 
another show out there already today. We were celebrating on that show, the Six Nations title. We chatted to Shane Horgan, Dennis Hickey was in the studio, Matt Williams, who was quite enthused with the many, many tries that were scored over the weekend. Also, Jenny Murphy of the Ireland women's team, who romped to their Six Nations, the Six Nations win, beating, uh, putting 73 points, uh, I think it was, in the end, uh, against Scotland. So have a listen to that if you, if you have any time today, or at any stage. The Republic of Ireland squad has gotten together ahead of next Sunday's qualifier against Poland. Martin Neal has given an update today at the Team Hotel in Malahide. Emmett Malone is there for the Irish Times. Emmett, how is the mood today? It's, uh, I guess it's a bit of a slow burn of a week. Yeah, yeah, it is a slow burn, and uh, I'm a bit chaotic. I mean, a lot of bodies out there this morning, even uh, with a few still to come in, but... Um, but Martin O'Neill, in, in in pretty good form afterwards, seems uh, seems kind of upbeat about the sort of players who we had been, you know, having doubts about over the last week or two in terms of their fitness at, at, at club level. So yeah, yeah, bright enough stuff uh, to to start the week. But as you say, it's going to be a long one, yeah. Yeah. So the fitness bulletin generally is pretty good. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, you know, people would have been worried certainly about Aidan McGeady, who uh, didn't even make the bench for Everton yesterday. But um, uh, Martin O'Neill's take on that was that it wasn't uh, remotely related to the injury. He simply wasn't involved. He travelled with the squad down, was available to take some part yesterday. Um, so it seems he's been he's been sidelined at, at the club as far as we can make out. But um, but I- as far as O'Neill is concerned, he's fit. He took part in training today, uh, did some fairly intense work apparently, and uh, came through it fine. Same goes for Robbie Brady came on for 10 minutes of uh, Hull's game against Chelsea um, you know a week, a week ago Steve Bruce was saying that he didn't have any chance of making either that game or uh, the Poland game this week but uh, again took a reasonable part in training this morning and uh, is seen uh, by O'Neill at this point in time as being on course to be fit and available for the game um, Stephen Ward has uh, an ankle injury uh, as, well a recurrence of the ankle injury uh, that he sustained before Christmas he had an operation at that point and um, the word on him is that he's going off to have it uh, looked at again he doesn't seem to be in great shape and they seem to be thinking in terms of him being away from training for a couple of days then coming back in at the end of the week and seeing how he gets on and uh uh, McCarthy and Seamus Coleman. Uh, Coleman took part, actually. I think uh, O'Neill said that uh, Coleman sat some of it tonight, a lot of it today. But for the bit we were there, uh, Coleman was certain, certainly taking part. Gibson uh, has a bit of a groin problem. He sat some of it out. Uh, McCarthy sat a good chunk of it out. But uh, I think it's really just on the basis that they've been involved with Everton a lot over the last few days, travelling a lot. And uh, again, you know, no real concerns about Gibson, maybe slightly a bit of a concern. But uh, the others, certainly, the, the expectation is they'll be fine. If Stephen Ward doesn't make it in it, mm. who, who's the um, who's the likely option there? I mean, you, you know, there's, there's maybe... You would think, you would think Wilson. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think in, in the in the in the some of the previous games, the competitive games under under um, O'Neill, I think there's been uh, repeatedly a kind of prediction that uh, that that he might switch Wilson there, and, and he's and he's stuck with Ward, and he like seems to like Ward, and he seems to see Ward as a first choice left back. So, um, but if uh, if Ward doesn't make it, I guess Wilson is the most logical choice. Uh, although he doesn't seem you know uh, he doesn't seem entirely you know um, to, to maybe see that as 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 natural kind of switch as, as the rest of us do uh, with then uh, I mean a lot of people this morning speculating on Clark maybe coming into central defence I'd have to say maybe Kyo uh, he seems to certainly like Kyo um, and, uh, and Kyo has kind of repaid him when he's shown a bit of faith in him so I think say there the, the, the sort of switches you're talking about and certainly on the strength of this morning I, I think we are talking about those sort of switches because it's hard to see Ward um, having played so little football for Burnley of late uh, then having to uh, have this 
ankle uh, looked at again and missing a couple of days training, it's really difficult to see how he's going to be in, in, involved on Sunday. The McGeady thing is a little bit worrying, given that mm. uh, he, I mean, okay, he scored our international goal of the yeah. year. This was at the awards last night. And it's, it's good that he's fit. It's just not very good necessarily. If that he's been sidelined. Side-line. I mean, is that, is that an important consideration, do you think, for, for Martin O'Neill? Has he been a guy who is looking to club form rather than I mean Giovanni Trapattoni well, is pretty different I, I, but I look I think he does look to club form a bit but there's certain guys in this in this squad that he just loves to bits you know and I, and I and I don't think there's anyone that he loves more than McGeady so um yeah, I, I, it is. I think it's a major concern. He's, he's played very little football. He's coming back off the back of a, a, a knee problem. Get becomes fit and available to the squad. And Martinez doesn't see fit to to involve him at all. Not even put him on the bench. I mean, that's that's pretty remarkable. But um, but uh, if if anyone I think is going to be forgiven that sort of exclusion at club level, it's got to be McGeady, isn't it? Because uh, he just really likes him. I mean, McLean is is another one. I mean, they're just guys in this in this squad who who might be judged be kind of punching a, a bit above their weight in terms of the manager's estimation of them and I think those two are right up there. Jack Grealish it was looking and sounding very much like uh, Republic of Ireland senior international in, in waiting at the awards mm. last night Emmett. He was yeah. I believe Shay Given his, his teammate was also talking today and was asked about him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think Given kind of always seemed to think he was always very quite optimistic that uh, Grealish would in the end uh, uh, declare for Ireland but um he seemed a bit bemused by the idea of uh, him having taken this year out. He didn't seem uh, to, to, to to know that that was the kind of thinking behind it. Uh, Grealish, um, for anyone who didn't hear it last night, said that he had, you know, made it sound like it had all been kind of part uh, of, a, of an entirely reasonably planned out move that uh, he had sat down with Noel King some time ago, said he wanted a, um, a year away from international football to help establish himself at club level. And it sounded like it had always been sort of understood that he was coming back. Now, that hasn't always been the way that Noel King came across, though he's never kind of said anything, you know, flatly contradicting that. Um, but he never came across as entirely convinced that the, the situation was um, was a clear-cut one. Um, it is a bit strange, uh, isn't it? I mean, if this, if this had been the situation, why did nobody say anything about it? It could have saved a lot of annoying questions over a long period of time. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I think that's it. I, I think uh, I've been at a couple of press conferences where Noel has talked about it. I talked to him on the phone, I think, once or twice about it. And, and he was always kind of hopeful that uh, Grealish would indeed uh, uh, declare. But uh, he didn't sound like a man who had a, who had an understanding with, with the player. Um, uh, so I, I don't know. Look, I mean, how, how much of it is kind of retrospectively um, um, painting over the uncertainty um, uh, I'm not sure, but uh, but certainly last night he he was you know sounded very much like he was on course to be available again in September. Um, if his intention was to really establish himself firmly at Villa, I don't think he's quite pulled that off. So um, there might be a, there might be um, the, the, a logical basis for extending the, the period away to concentrate on his club career, or maybe he feels that it was a mistake in the first place, and really that you know international involvement might have helped to bring him on at club level, um, given that the difficulties that, that Aston Villa have had. Obviously, we've had Tim Sherwood in the last few weeks talking about him possibly playing for England. Um, I think there was a clear message from, from Roy Keane um, some time ago that there was a lot of uncertainty there and that some of it revolved around the player's father, uh, who is obviously a big influence on his career. 
Um, but here we have anyway, uh, uh, Grealish saying, signaling very strongly he's going to be back. Um, Shea Given this morning kind of laughing off the idea of this kind of gap year, you know, where he goes to sort of find himself a little bit, you know, but uh, but quite enthusiastic about about him declaring, about being involved uh, with Ireland again, and and talking really about even though perhaps he hasn't made as much progress um, or as much of an impact at Villa as some people would have hoped. Uh, that he is, you know, coming along there. That you know, Sherwood, uh, like Lambert before him, probably um, you know has been easing him into the side rather than throwing him in at the deep end. And that the general feeling around the club is still very much that he's destined for big things. All right, Emma, we'll leave it uh, leave you to it there, Malahai. Thanks, a million. Great, cheers, bye. I guess that approach by Jack Reedish could be taken by any player, uh, any young player. I'm just going to concentrate on my club. But then it's, I'd say for Grealish, it's gone reasonably well, and he's played some football without becoming. Uh, mainstay of the team or anything like that. It's, it's, you could by by that definition, you could nearly never play international football if you just wanted to each year just clarify things for yourself at club level. But listen, in the long run, if that's the way it ends up, that he was just taking a year out, even if he was flirting with the England idea, it doesn't, doesn't really matter if he turns out to if he turns out to be a, an Ireland international who wins sixty or seventy caps. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure about the old um, the explanation that's been put forward. It sounds. Convenient. It, it reminds me a bit of the you know the doomsday device in Doctor Strangelove, where they don't tell anyone about it and it sort of destroys the whole purpose. I mean, if you have got like if you if you have got something which a piece of information which will pour oil on all the troubled waters in the world, why not just put it out there instead of let everyone worry? You know, this sense this idea that he was always going to be coming back. You know, he, he this is just the scheduled gap here. Um, but you know, it's ultimately it's good news if he wants to play for Ireland. That's great, um, and he needs to, I suppose, establish himself more as a club player uh, before that's realistically going to happen. But the more talented players or, or players with potential that Ireland have, the better. All right, just one more quick word again on a a man who hasn't featured as regularly in recent years on these football shows as he used to do. That's it's an old Liverpool manager, Rafa Benitez, is in the news. Yes, <laughs> Rafael Benitez. Uh, uh, with a memorable display of scalded indignation at, on the sideline during the game between uh, Napoli and Atalanta. Uh, and this all stemming from an incident in the 72nd minute. Uh, <laughs> when, okay, there's a, if you, you have to watch the footage quite carefully, on, but there is a little bit of a foul in the build-up to the goal that Atalanta score, which is to say that Pinilla, the Atalanta goal scorer, runs through there's a ball, he's chasing a ball, the defender's clearly got it under control, he's going to pass it back to the goalkeeper until he shoves him in the back, knocks him down, runs through and takes it around the keeper and scores. Uh, He then jogs away with a sort of quite muted celebration, thinking, okay, you know, this goal is probably going to be, you can see him taking little glances around, this is probably going to get ruled out. But it's given, and it's Rafa then who is is left to... uh, well, it, it 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 culminated in the first red card of his his twenty two year career. Owen Rafa, he's never been sent off before. He said a few sarcastic things. It's very difficult to referee with only six officials, says Benitez. Clearly, they need extra ones on either side of the goal, so they might actually see the incidents. So um, yeah, yeah, he he wasn't happy and he was sent off. But at least they scored a last minute equaliser. Hope you've enjoyed this show. Have a listen to our Six Nations podcast from earlier today. Uh, you can check out that and anything else you want on irishtimes.com forward slash second captains. Follow us on Twitter at second captains. Cheers for listening to this one. Uh, it's been, uh, it was a hell of a weekend. Uh, it's been been fun chatting today. Thank you again. Thank you too, Arm. Thanks again. And we'll talk to you later in the week. Take care.
Is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those 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 boys. <laughs> <laughs>